This is a recording of Finding Parallels, Some Cautions and Criticisms, Part 2, by Benjamin A. McGuire. Originally published in Interpreter, A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 5, 2013, pages 61 to 104, read by James Jensen. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Finding Parallels, Some Cautions and Criticisms, Part 2 Benjamin A. McGuire Review of Rick Grunder, Mormon Parallels Abstract Discovering parallels is inherently an act of comparison. Through comparison, parallels have been introduced frequently as proof or evidence of different issues within Mormon studies. Despite this frequency, very few investigations provide a theoretical or methodological framework by which the parallels themselves can be evaluated. This problem is not new to the field of Mormon studies, but has in the past plagued literary studies more generally. In Part 1, this review essay discusses present and past approaches dealing with the ways in which parallels have been used and valued in acts of literary comparison, uncovering the various difficulties associated with unsorted parallels, as well as discussing the underlining motivations for these comparisons. In Part 2, a methodological framework is introduced and applied to examples from Grunder's collection in Mormon Parallels. In using a consistent methodology to value these parallels, this essay suggests a way to address the historical concerns associated with using parallels to explain both texts and Mormonism as an historical religious movement. Part 2. A Preliminary Methodology Quote, The process of recognizing parallels, like Darwin discovering distinctive but similar species of finches on the various islands of the Galapagos, is first and foremost the assembly of a data set on and from which new analysis will need to be based. On first sight, the similarities must evoke some appropriate theoretical explanation, but upon reflection and with the collection of each new data set, one will begin to evaluate and analyze not only the data but also the previous theories themselves. The process of comparison in the light of the new data sets must also cause us to reformulate, or, as Smith puts it, to deconstruct and reconstruct the theories themselves. End quote. Over the past two centuries, there have been many lists of rules offered on the process of presenting parallels. As often as not, these are discussions on what shouldn't be done as opposed to what should be. I referenced several of these in my introductory material. See part one of this essay. Most of these deal with the idea of direct borrowing, of situations where there is a proposed genetic connection between the two texts. Grunder's material is a bit different. He stresses that he is not interested in demonstrating direct connections so much as in finding these parallels in Joseph's environment. In some ways, as I will demonstrate in Grunder's parallels, he is conflating these two ideas, genetic and environmental connections. By stressing that what is found in parallels is not original, he is suggesting that Mormon parallels he finds show that Mormon traditions and texts drew from their environment in a more or less genetic fashion. Comparing two bodies of literature is, in itself, not all that unusual, and much of the same process is involved as when we compare individual texts. 
As Lanier tells us, quote, So far I have dealt mainly with the relation between individual texts. The basic problems of method remain the same when the critic chooses to handle larger entities, such as whole works, literary periods, or even national literatures, end quote. Here, however, we run into another significant problem with Grunder's approach. He is attempting to compare Mormon sources with other texts from the same environment. Yet, as noted earlier, the Mormon sources are already a part of that environment. In attempting to separate them, in attempting to make them a derivative of that environment in which they are themselves already in the act of influencing and changing, Grunder has misunderstood some of the issues. In order to separate them, we have to produce some kind of rational basis for distinguishing between the two groups of literature. Usually this is not difficult. Quote, we cannot escape the conclusion that personal, epistolary, and literary relations between the two groups, that is, German and English Romantics, were extremely tenuous. Among the English, only Coleridge and De Quincey show the influence of German Romantic ideas, among the Germans, English Romantic influences from Byron and Scott come later. The two movements existed at the same time, but they ran parallel without making deeper contacts, if we accept Coleridge, whose very isolation points to the gulf between the two movements. The lack of historical context does not, of course, preclude similarities and even deep affinities." End quote. Grunder insists that the, quote, Mormon parallels in this bibliographic source are aspects of Mormonism which first existed in a non-Mormon context available in Joseph Smith's world, end quote. Part of the problem is that, at least for early Mormonism, every single early Mormon, without exception, existed first in a non-Mormon context, including Joseph Smith. There is no line of demarcation that separates many of these texts related to Mormonism from that larger environment. That environment shaped Mormonism just as Mormonism, in return, contributes to that evolving environment. Grunder's approach separates them by saying, in essence, quote, These on the one side are Mormon sources, and these on the other side are everything else. End quote. Part of my methodological concerns require that we redirect that initial suggestion, return these Mormon, quote, sources, end quote, back to their environment, and examine the parallels from a more appropriate perspective. In some cases, this may eliminate or reduce claims of uniqueness of a specific teaching. In other cases, it may enhance them. I will begin by providing a series of basic definitions. These detail in general terms the major categories of parallels and provide some basic guidelines to help identify what ought not to be considered a valid parallel. Following these definitions, I will address the issue of significance, that is, what kinds of parallels are purely environmental and thus not significant at all in helping us understand the texts, and which are derivative in some way either from the broader environment or from some specific sources. By separating these two categories, even if I fail to address the more complex situations, I can at least identify parallels that deserve more attention and cut away those that, while certainly parallels, have little interest to us. Additionally, I will comment on the selection of texts used as the basis for Grunder's bibliography. What constitutes a valid parallel? The term parallel itself is often used in different ways. A dictionary definition reads 1a. A parallel line, curve, or surface. b. 
one of the imaginary circles on the surface of the earth paralleling the equator and marking the latitude also the corresponding line on a globe or map see latitude illustration c a character used in printing especially as a reference mark to a something equal or similar in all essential particulars counterpart b similarity analog 3a comparison to show resemblance 4a the state of being physically parallel b an arrangement of electrical devices in a circuit in which the same potential difference is applied to two or more resistances with each resistance being on a different branch of the circuit compare series c an arrangement or state that permits several operations or tasks to be performed simultaneously rather than consecutively the definition that we are most interested in are the second and third the notion of a parallel of the sort that grunder is using both shows a resemblance by comparison and claims that there are these equivalencies between the sets of otherwise disparate elements that grunder has produced a parallel then represents some kind of similarity it can be a verbal similarity in the text involving use of the same or similar words it can be a thematic similarity involving the same kinds of ideas it can be a structural similarity for which ordering is important it might be a purely aesthetic similarity where the appearance of the text is highlighted part of identifying the parallel is to find a way to make it apparent and visible to others it should be noticed here that the comparative demonstration however subtle and protracted it may be still does not lead up to a logical deduction we are not asked by the critic to draw a conclusion but to confirm that we see what he points out to be seen i believe this comes rather close to what the biologist does when he compares microscopic slides from two species he fills in a certain pattern of nerves cells or what not so as to make it more easily observable it has been there all the time and the preparation does not add anything it only helps us to distinguish one particular pattern among many others this is a rather broad definition but i think it is useful particularly if we are interested in evaluating parallels that involve more than deliberate mimesis that is parallels that are attributable to environmental issues or even those that appear to be entirely coincidental however if we use the above analogy there are instances where what we see does not give us sufficient evidence of a pattern with which to claim some kind of meaningful sameness verbal parallels words early in his list of parallels grunder offers us three virtually identical proposals the proposed similarity occurs in a single word comoro compared to the name camora in the book of mormon and grunder notes several variants of this word in the original manuscript and the printer's manuscript of the book of mormon as well as in at least one other early lds source quote camoro camora kumara and komora end quote later he provides other examples as he notes quote, homonyms to the book of mormon's hill camora appeared in many works of the period end quote. he details many of these komora komorant which he describes as quote, resonant with the name camora kormorin gomora and its variant 
Gomorrah, both places add identical information. Quote, compare Gomorrah, both sites of massive destruction of the wicked, end quote. All of these parallels are problematic. When we deal with homonyms, using the term loosely as Grunder does, part of the point is that there is no relationship between the words. They merely sound alike or look alike. We could add to his list Camorra, a secret society in Italy that originated some time before the Book of Mormon was published. Camorra, generally spelled Zamora today, a city in Spain that was besieged during the 11th century and even described in the popular story of Don Quixote and the city of Comorano in Hungary, located at the confluence of the Danube and the Va rivers. Can we speak of parallels in a single word? Is the word to, T-O-O, really a parallel to the word to, T-W-O, or to the word to, T-O? Do these help us understand a text or a relationship between one text and another? Clearly they don't. I think that we have to conclude that in nearly every case these are not valid parallels. Part of the issue here goes to Grunder's purpose in eliminating originality. Generally speaking, we see words as the basic unit of meaning in texts. It is in fact that we all use the same words that lets us communicate in texts. Occasionally, we might encounter unknown words or unique words, or an author may produce a neologism. But to reduce originality even in the words that are not had elsewhere, we must reduce them to a sequence of letters and sounds, which then no longer have any meaning at all, and locate similarities to them. Since all words are sequences of letters and sounds, it isn't difficult at all to create a nearly endless string of such similarities, particularly if we, like Grinder, are not too fussy over identical sounds or spellings. If we allow for parallels of this sort, then no word is ever unique or original. There are several parallel sources listed in Grunder's work that follow this pattern. Additionally, there is another concern. At times, Grunder seems to be arguing for a genetic connection between a specific pair of homonyms. If the only concern is for similar-looking or sounding words, then there isn't a need for additional explanation beyond placing the terms in the environment. When Grunder quotes Buchanan as saying, quote, If subsequent research on the origins of the names Moroni and Camorra point to the Comoro Islands as a source, end quote, he is forwarding this argument for a genetic connection. When he suggests, as I note above, that Gomorra is a plausible parallel for Camorra, both because, quote, both were sites of massive destruction of the wicked, end quote, Grunder is making an argument for a genetic connection, and yet both cannot be the source of the name Camorra in the Book of Mormon. If even one of these is accurate, then all of the others must be coincidental parallels. Perhaps Grunder is arguing that Joseph synthesized the name Camorra from the entire list of potential homonyms, and yet this strains credulity. All of these near homonyms cannot have equal value, and yet Grunder presents them as if they do. For the reasons provided above, similarity between words based on sounds and characters used are generally only useful when we deal with questions of derivation, of etymology, and for texts with genetic connections. There is no value to dealing with words when we discuss environmental similarities. 
My methodology rejects as parallels these kinds of similarities between single words unless one of the more direct relationships mentioned above can also be determined. Parallels identified on the basis of the words used are called verbal parallels. In providing for the widest useful identification of verbal parallels, I have adopted the definition of John Paulian. Quote, a verbal parallel can be defined as occurring whenever at least two words of more than minor significance are parallel between sources. These two major words may be coupled together in a phrase or may even be separated, provided they are in clear relationship to each other in both passages of the suggested parallel. End quote. Verbal parallels, shared phrases. Of course, longer strings of identical texts, much more than two words, provide a self-evident demonstration of their relationship to each other. But when the text is not of sufficient length, we must concern ourselves with showing that the words are used in similar ways, that their meanings are similar as opposed to different, and that the relationships between the sources is otherwise consistent. Of course, one of the ways that this is commonly done is to show the relative uniqueness or some kind of technical usage of the shared phrase. It is at this point that Muriel St. Clair Byrne suggested we need to apply the, quote, negative check, end quote. As Harold Love explains, quote, here Lyon, Gutenberg, and similar electronic archives come into their own, since as well as providing illusory parallels, they also assist mightily in shooting down those which arise from common parlance of the time. Once we have encountered an unusual expression in the writings of three or four different authors, it ceases to have any value for attribution, end quote. While this is aimed at more direct genetic connections between texts and asserting authorship of one text based on similarities to another work or body of work, it applies here as well. Phrases that are part of the common language of the time do not generally help us. At best, they place a text within a certain time and place, but we generally already have such information for the Mormon parallels. In order to connect one text to a specific tradition or body of material, something more specific must be used. This argument is raised by Grunder in Parallel 26. The issue there is the use of the phrase, quote, secret combinations, end quote, in the Book of Mormon and in Masonic literature. While this argument is not new to Grunder, he references Dan Vogel's Joseph Smith, The Making of a Prophet, he attempts to extend Vogel's arguments over the nature of the phrase in response to criticisms of Vogel's work. Grunder attempts to bolster Vogel's argument by suggesting that to him, quote, the objections by early 1830 Masons who were opposed to applying the term, quote, all secret combinations, end quote, exclusively to Freemasonry and other secret fraternal societies, and many anti-Masons' insistence that, quote, all secret combinations, end quote, did refer exclusively to such groups, by that time and in such contexts as much, end quote. He insists that this usage of the phrase is exclusive to this context. In addition, we are told, contrary opinions are, quote, utterly innocent of the most obvious consideration of the evolution of language, end quote. Grunder then goes on to provide what he believes is an analogous situation. Quote, Most alert, educated individuals of the 1960s through 70s, for example, must have noticed the linguistic evolution of the term chauvinism. 
Prior to the 1970s women's movement, that term was heard rather infrequently, and its definition was the one which it had enjoyed since the early mid-19th century, that of, quote, exaggerated patriotism of a bellicose sort, blind enthusiasm for national glory or military ascendancy, end quote. By the mid-1970s, however, most of us heard the term only in conjunction with, quote, male, end quote, until finally a chauvinist in everyday speech came to mean a man who was blind to women's issues. Then, as the specialized application of the word became entrenched and common, it evolved further, expanded in popular usage to apply to a person who was irrationally prejudiced against any cause at hand, end quote. There is a severe problem with Grunder's comparison here. If we follow Harold Love's advice, we find hundreds of examples of the use of this phrase, quote, secret combination, end quote. Some of them occur before the publication of the Book of Mormon, some of them occur after, and some of them are contemporary. On the whole, only a minority of these instances relate to Freemasonry. So while there may be a distinct evolution of the term chauvinism with the phrase secret combinations, we have the same term being used repeatedly to refer to different things and different groups. The term doesn't evolve as Grunder's claim requires. It gets applied and reapplied to these different organizations, often simultaneously when the time period is appropriate, because the meaning of the phrase doesn't change, as it did with the example that Grunder provides. Grunder then provides us with three, quote, intellectual wrongs, end quote, that he explains are used by those who disagree with Vogel's theory. Quote, one, he or she will look for the term chauvinist primarily in sober, formal writings rather than in whatever popular level or simple, ephemeral productions which may have survived. He will do this by searching easily accessible documents rather than spending decades pursuing obscure remnants and productions of the grassroots culture of the entire 20th century. End quote. Love gives us a different perspective on this. He tells us that, quote, when Byrne wrote, the accumulation of parallels was a labor-intensive business which depended on incessant reading of the works concerned. Today, a phrase can be pursued almost instantaneously through the magnificent online Lion Archive, which covers all fields of English and American drama and have authored volumes of poetry up to 1900, and in many cases beyond, and is rapidly extending into prose, end quote. The search through digital archives is simple. It is fast. If it were used as a primary source for documenting a parallel, as Grunder is doing, it would be inappropriate. As a negative check, as Love explains, these digital archives work very well to identify when an argument has overstepped the evidence. Grunder's criteria for selecting texts helps create a hidden bias. What Grunder labels as an intellectual wrong using these archives as a negative check on the hypothesis, is actually a very appropriate way to avoid the kinds of mistakes that have been identified over the last two centuries of literary investigation. Quote, number two, he will consult only a very few contrary sources in his, quote, research, end quote. During his perfunctory visit among those sources, he will notice very few women's issue occurrences of chauvinist. He must acknowledge a few examples which his scholarly opponents have already cited, 
but he will qualify those unfavorable occurrences carefully, creating an artificial impression of overall low frequency and a misleading impression of careful precision in his study. Negative checks by nature generally don't need to include the evidence that is already presented. On the other hand, since the writing of those critical essays, the scope of accessible digital archives has increased. These kinds of experiments can be reproduced by anyone with Internet access. As of the writing of this essay, searching one digital archive suggested that between the beginning of 1828 and the beginning of 1832, only 8.8% of published books that contain the phrase secret combination also included information on Masons. In this specific case, the overall low frequency isn't just a misleading impression. Quote, number three. Finding it difficult to identify equal frequency of showiness before the 1970s compared to the post-1970 period, he will extend his sampling generously backward before the relevant period. Then he will carry the sampling forward beyond the target period, taking care to identify enough widely evolved usages of the now popularized term to create an illusion of an even continuum of traditional or non-women's movement definitions and occurrences of chauvinists over a period of a century or more. Such an approach, then, would ignore the genuine frequency, the placement, and the significance of the linguistic term under study by searching primarily the most easily accessible formal texts, by ignoring the sources most likely to contain contradictory data, and by ignoring the entire phenomenon of the evolution of a linguistic term's definition and frequency of use when impacted by a single, dramatic, concentrated social movement, end quote. The reverse is certainly also true. If we present only Masonic documents from a very narrow slice of time, if we ignore all instances of a phrase that are both contemporary and relevant, relevant because it is an identical phrase used in the same environment that the Masonic documents come from, and we ignore the genuine frequency of the phrase in the total body of literature created by the larger cultural milieu, then we create a picture where only one conclusion can be drawn. The difference, of course, between the anti-Masonic movement and the feminist movement is that the first died almost immediately. Within less than a decade, the anti-Masonic movement was over, and the fraternal societies had become even more popular than they were before the Morgan affair. The feminist movement was not a brief vanishing phenomenon and has persisted for decades. On the other hand, the notion of, quote, secret combinations, end quote, has been used to describe labor movements, Freemasons, members of the Ku Klux Klan, communists, and even the Republican Party, along with nearly every other group or organization that has been accused of nefarious motivations. This continuum of usage works because the phrase has never linguistically evolved into such a narrow technical framework as the word chauvinist did. Grunder is quite right in the idea that technical usage of exclusive similarities can create significant parallels. However, in this case, his narrow focus on sources prevents him from properly applying a negative check. In responding to Grunder's shortlist, I suggest that these issues are, quote, intellectual wrongs, end quote, only if we use them as evidence for our theory. When used, as the critical arguments do, as a negative check, these approaches are not only important, they are necessary to either validate the argument or, in this case, to refute it. 
Thematic Parallels Moving away from words and phrases, we encounter the notion of meaning. Thematic parallels are parallels in thought, in doctrine, or in practice that go beyond the mere words used to convey that thought. Like words, there can be limitations to the range of these parallels. Perhaps the first thing to observe is that there are only a limited number of options in any given historical setting. Only a certain number of ideas are possible, and only a certain number of ways of doing things are available. We need not wonder at similarities, which need not necessarily be a sign of borrowing in one direction or the other. Many things in a given historical and cultural setting will be arrived at independently by more than one group, simply because there is not an unlimited number of options available about how to do something. For example, how many ways are there to select leaders in a community? We could list inheritance, election, appointment by one or a few in authority, or chance, for example, casting lots. Any additions made to the list will not generally extend the range of possibilities. That two groups use the same method does not necessarily mean that one is copying the other. Of course, we aren't entirely concerned here with copying genetic relationships, yet the point is valid for this discussion. Thematic parallels can occur naturally. As with words, we need to look at contexts, comparing the similarities we see with the differences, and in this way determine if we have a valid parallel or a superficial similarity that is not carried out by a more detailed analysis. Do the proposed thematic parallels work the same way in both places? Are the similarities essential to the material, that is, are the ways in which the proposed texts, narratives, practices, or doctrines more central to the individual traditions than their differences? Structural Parallels Structural parallels are not about the textual content, but about how it is presented. Structural parallels generally are far more significant in determining genetic connections because they often imply that one text is modeled or patterned on another text. When we see two or more texts that follow a specific and identical pattern, when they both introduce similar language and themes in the same order, we have structural parallels. As with the other kinds of parallels, the longer the pattern is sustained, the stronger the parallel becomes. Structural parallels can also include stylized forms, existing in poetic material, aesthetic appearances, and even sequences of sounds when read aloud. Within structural parallels, our concern with differences is also important, but in a different way. Structural similarities can occur within an entire body of material, like the Ten Commandments from Hebrew Scripture. And yet there are often variances in order and content. Finding a set of the Ten Commandments would place a text into that group of materials that contains such a list, but the specific ordering or pattern might narrow down the field of potential genetic connections. In several cases we might consider, as with thematic parallels, the potential for similar sequences being quite independent, even if identical. Birth and death are such natural parts of any person's experience that finding the one before another in a text, while clearly a parallel, wouldn't necessarily give us a reason to look beyond simple coincidence. The significance of such structural parallels is diminished when many sources share the same structure. Parallels in Art Among Grunder's set of parallels are pieces of artwork. 
Art in general is a more difficult topic in which to discuss parallels because it often comes without an appropriate framework for comparison. In these cases, we need to be particularly cognizant of how important placing these parallels into an appropriate social and cultural context is, and then try to understand how important the similar elements are within those independent contexts. The purpose and intention of an entire piece of art then becomes important, even if difficult to assess, when attempting to compare art, and our own interpretation plays an obvious role as the present viewer. Here we see the greatest room for making our own expectations play an exaggerated role in finding parallels where none actually exist. The two-column format. One of the traditional ways of presenting parallels is the sort that Grunder generally follows, the two-column format. We present the two texts side by side to highlight the similarities. In some instances, particularly when a parallel has been noted extensively in other literature, he simply refers us to that literature. This approach, as demonstrated earlier, has generally been widely criticized. In dealing with this approach here, one set of more recent criticisms stands out. Alexander Lindy detailed many of what he calls the, quote, vices, end quote, of using parallels in his book, Plagiarisms and Originality. Quote, number one, any method of comparison which lists or underscores similarities and suppresses or minimizes differences is necessarily misleading. Number two, parallels are too readily susceptible of manipulation. Superficial resemblances may be made to appear as of the essence. Three, parallel hunters do not, as a rule, set out to be truthful and impartial. They are hell-bent on proving a point. Four, Parallel hunting is predicated on the use of lowest common denominators. Virtually all literature, even the most original, can be reduced to such terms, and thereby shown to be unoriginal. So viewed, Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper plagiarizes Dickens' David Copperfield. Both deal with England. Both describe the slums of London. Both see their hero exalted beyond his original station. To regard any two books in this light, however, is to ignore every factor that differentiates one man's thoughts, reactions, and literary expressions from another's. 5. Parallel columns operate piecemeal. They wrench phrases and passages out of context. A product of the imagination is indivisible. It depends on totality of effect. To remove details from their setting is to falsify them. 6. Parallels fail to indicate the proportion which the purportedly borrowed material bears to the sum total of the source, or to the whole of the new work. Without such information, a just appraisal is impossible. 7. The practitioners of the technique resort too often to sleight of hand. They employ language not to record facts or to describe things accurately, but as props in a rhetorical hocus-pocus which, by describing different things in identical words, appears to make them magically alike. 8. A double-column analysis is a dissection. An autopsy will reveal a great deal about a cadaver, but very little about the spirit of the man who once inhabited it. 9. Most parallels rest on the assumption that if two successive things are similar, the second one was copied from the first. This assumption disregards all the other possible causes of similarity. Whatever his vices or virtues, the parallel hunter is a hardy species. He is destined, as someone had said, to persist until Judgment Day, 
when he will doubtless find resemblances in the very warrant that consigns him to the nether regions. End quote. These vices point out the dangers of asserting a genetic connection between two texts or between two traditions. While Grunder tries to deflect this kind of criticism in dealing, as he suggests, with environmental issues, most of these criticisms still apply to the collection that Grunder has produced. How do we avoid making these mistakes? I engage a set of four similar rules. Differences are as important as similarities. Parallels need to be examined in progressively expanding contexts. Parallels should be discussed in a detailed and specific fashion. Rhetorical values, the intentions of an author, and the purpose of a text should all be taken into consideration. To illustrate these four principles, I will apply them towards the parallel Grunder titles, quote, rest needed for mental exercise, the mind like a tightly strung bow, end quote. The parallel, as Grunder presents it, is as follows. The first source is taken from William Alcott's The Young Man's Guide, originally published in 1833. The second is taken from a personal recollection published in the Juvenile Instructor on August 1st, 1892. Both are reproduced here from Grunder's texts. Quote, Source 1. Some of our students in Commons and elsewhere suppose themselves highly meritorious because they have adopted the plan of appointing one of their number to read to the company while the rest are eating. But they are sadly mistaken. Nothing is gained by the practice. On the contrary, much is lost by it. The bow cannot always remain bent without injury, neither can the mind always be kept, quote, toned, end quote, to a high pitch. Mind and body must and will have their relaxation. Source 2. I have played ball with him, Joseph Smith, many times in Nauvoo. He was preaching once, and he said it tried some of the pious folk to see him play ball with the boys. He then related a story of a certain prophet who was sitting under the shade of a tree, amusing himself in some way, when a hunter came along with his bow and arrow and reproved him. The prophet asked him if he kept his bow strung up all the time. The hunter answered that he did not. The prophet asked, Why? And he said, It would lose its elasticity if he did. The prophet said, It was just so with his mind. He did not want it strung up all the time. End quote sameness and difference. Comparisons by nature suggest examining two or more things. If we reduce texts to their similarities, the only conclusions we can draw is that they are alike, even if that view is in error. By introducing the differences, we can start to look a little deeper at what makes the comparison interesting. Are the elements that first seem similar only superficially so? Are they in fact quite closely related? Does the use of a particular phrase in one text provide additional understanding for the use of a similar phrase in another text? In this case, the texts were chosen for several reasons. One of them is that there is an obvious similarity. It occurs in the use of the idea of a strung bow as a metaphor applied to the mind. But with that similarity also comes differences. If there weren't any differences, we would have identical texts. First, in the Alcott text, the reference is not just to the mind. Alcott tells us that, quote, mind and body must and will have their relaxations, end quote. There is no reference to the body in the all-red recollection. The other primary difference between the two is the language. Despite the header that Grunder gives it, only the words bow and mind occur in both selections. 
and the word strung occurs only in the all-read recollection. The other words, rest, needed, mental, exercise, tightly, occur in neither text. These observations might give us something to look at more closely. Does the language used tell us anything about the natures of these two texts within their specific contexts? Does the distinction between mind and mind and body warrant further examination? Context and Expanding Circle The Alcott passage is taken from his The Young Man's Guide. It is one of a genre of books which continues, although in very different forms, perhaps to the present time, in which instruction is provided for young people. It is divided into seven chapters, each with several sections. The quote the Grunder provides comes from the seventh section, On Forming Temperate Habits, of the first chapter, On the Formation of Character, which consists of guidelines for eating and drinking. The section in which the quotation is taken deals with issues of eating too quickly, or not quickly enough, and appropriate conversation at the dinner table. The full paragraph in which it occurs, which is helpful for understanding the context, is provided below. Quote, the idea of preventing conversation about what we eat is also foolish, though Dr. Franklin and many very wise men may have thought otherwise. Some of our students in commons and elsewhere suppose themselves highly meritorious because they have adopted the plan of appointing one of their number to read to the company while the rest are eating, but they are sadly mistaken. Nothing is gained by the practice. On the contrary, much is lost by it. The bow cannot always remain bent without injury. Neither can the mind always be kept toned to a high pitch. Mind and body must and will have their relaxations or be revenged on us. What sort of injury does Alcott suggest will come? He tells us in the preceding paragraph that inappropriate eating produces quote, stomach or liver complaints or gout or rheumatism, end quote. and after providing us with the material Grunder quotes, he tells us in no uncertain terms, quote, but I do say, and with emphasis, that food must be masticated, end quote. This is not so much a text about mental exercise as it is about proper habits while eating. The all-red recollection, on the other hand, is quite short, part of a longer series of recollections by various other individuals, but the all-read comments are distinct both from the rest of the article and from the periodical in which they were published. They are reproduced below in their entirety. Quote, As I was not quite fifteen years old when I first saw him, I cannot remember many of his sayings at that time, but as he was returning he preached in the Salt River branch. I was with him in the troubles at DeWitt, Adam on Diamond, and in Far West. I have played ball with him many times in Nauvoo. He was preaching once, and he said it tried some of the pious folks to see him play ball with the boys. He then related a story of a certain prophet, who was sitting under the shade of a tree amusing himself in some way, when a hunter came along with his bow and arrow and reproved him. The prophet asked him if he kept his bow strung up all the time. The hunter answered that he did not. The prophet asked why, and he said it would lose its elasticity if he did. The prophet said it was just so with his mind. He did not want it strung up all the time. Another time, when I heard him preaching, he said if he should tell the people all the Lord had revealed to him, some would seek his life. Even as good a man as old father C., here on the stand, he added, pointing back to him, would seek his life. I was present when he preached the first sermon on baptism for the dead. 
I remember my father said it was astonishing to him to think he had read the Bible all his life and he had never looked at it in that light before. I was present at the first baptism for the dead. The contexts seem to be quite different. It is true that there is a similarity there, but that similarity isn't nearly as neat and tidy when we look at larger contexts. At this point, we need to expand our examination beyond the two texts in question. Frequency in other sources. Earlier, I quoted the fifth of Muriel C. St. Burns' Five Golden Rules. Quote, in order to express ourselves as certain of attributions, we must prove exhaustively that we cannot parallel words, images, and phrases as a body from other acknowledged plays of the period. In other words, the negative check must always be applied. End quote. The idea behind the negative check is quite simple. If we can find a proposed verbal parallel in multiple sources, then it becomes very unlikely that the parallel in question is one of genetic nature. The same idea applies when we compare a text to a larger body of materials or a tradition. If we can find the same parallels outside of that body of literature or that tradition, then establishing a connection between the text and that tradition or body of material becomes much more difficult. Most digital archives allow for searching by date range. The two primary electronic repositories I use are Google Books and the Making of America archive hosted by the University of Michigan. Grunder indicates that he is specifically looking at the environmental argument. Quote, it may be appropriate here to remind the reader that Mormon parallel works need not be candidates as specific sources necessarily consulted by Joseph Smith. Instead, this bibliographic source seeks to offer a broad and realistic social-intellectual context for Joseph's teachings in a variety of generally significant texts, such as the one here at hand. End quote. When we begin searching for these parallels, our perception of Grunder's similarities begins to change dramatically. There are two larger traditions that these two texts variously use, and both find wide circulation at the time of Joseph Smith. The first comes to us through the Odes of Horus, written sometime around 23 BC. The passage in question comes from Book 2, Chapter 10, Line 19. Necu semper arcuntendit Apollo. John DeVoe Belton explains to us that this phrase means, quote, Apollo does not always keep his bow bent. The quotation is ordinarily used in the sense that there are times when we all need relaxation from the point of high tension, end quote. Of course, the original text by Horace doesn't convey this sentiment, but we know that it had built this public perception much earlier than the texts we are currently considering, as we see from this commentary originally published in 1712. Quote, Homer says that the arrows of this god brought the plague into the Grecian camp, the reason of which is evident. In like manner, when Horace says here that Apollo has not always his bow bent, he means that Apollo does not always afflict mankind with the forementioned calamities. It is therefore a wrong application of these words, which a great many make, when they use them to express that the mind ought not always to be upon the stretch, but should now and then be allowed some relaxation. The phrase in several forms becomes something of a euphemism. Alcott himself had already used it in 1839 in another of his books. Quote, it is impossible for the liver to be thus excited at times to increased action without falling into correspondent inactivity at other times. The bow cannot always remain bent. It must react or rebound. The pendulum, too, 
which has vibrated too far in one direction will vibrate too far in the other direction as the natural and inevitable consequence so with the action of the liver end quote. here the comparison is made not between the mind and a bow but uses the euphemism to refer again to the body including the connection only implicitly made here that like the bow being injured so too is the body injured there are numerous allusions to this metaphor in literature and there is little doubt that this idea would have been at least somewhat familiar to the early followers of joseph smith the second tradition is also interesting in the all-red recollection joseph relates a story about a prophet much like horace the source of that narrative is quite old and can be traced back at least as far as john cashin a d three sixty to four thirty five it seems unlikely but possible that cashin was the author of this account more likely he in turn adapted an earlier convention r allen culpepper provides a nice summary of the story quote, john was stroking a partridge when a hunter appeared and expressed surprise that the great apostle was amusing himself in this way john asked the hunter why he did not keep his bow strung all the time and the hunter answered that if he did so it would soon be weakened from the constant strain john replied that just in the same way the mind needs to relax from time to time cashin's text was quite popular and was quickly distributed and translated from latin into greek later versions often made changes but the story of john and the partridge remained largely intact closer to joseph's time this narrative was given a rebirth when it was used by francis de salle in his text titled introduction to the devout life first published in french in sixteen o nine and subsequently published in many languages including english in translation de salle's account reads as follows quote, it is necessary sometimes to relax our minds as well as our bodies by some kind of recreation st john the evangelist as cashin relates was one day found by a huntsman with a partridge on his hand which he was caressing for his recreation the huntsman asked how such a man as he could spend his time in so poor and mean an occupation st john replied why dost thou not carry thy bow always bent for fear answered the huntsman that if it were always bent it would lose its spring and become useless be not surprised then replied the apostle that i should sometimes remit a little of the close application and attention of my spirit and enjoy a little recreation that i may afterward employ myself more fervently in divine contemplation the similarities between the all-red account and the narrative of john and the partridge are remarkable it seems quite likely that when as all-red recollects joseph related the story of quote, a certain prophet end quote, that prophet was none other than john the evangelist the other elements follow in roughly the same order a hunter sees the man amusing himself confronts him is asked about his bow answered and is then told that the mind is like the bow and needs to rest from time to time this is a far more complex string of similarities and there can be little doubt that the story that allred provides relies heavily either directly or through joseph smith on this tradition about john the evangelist there is also little doubt that these issues also reflect a tradition present in Joseph's environment, but Grunder's Mormon parallel doesn't give us a cultural or intellectual context for Joseph's teaching. The devil is in the detail. Quote, it is as dangerous historically to exaggerate the similarities as it is to become overly comfortable with the differences. End quote. 
In this specific example of the prophet and the bow, the header that Gunder provides, which functions also as a description of the parallel, is misleading. It is more of a synthesis or an interpretation of the two accounts that he is proposing. In order to make them appear more closely related than they are, he has used his own language to describe the similarity. This language also induces his readers to focus on certain generalities in order to highlight those similarities. As we look at the details, however, we notice differences. The more generic and less specific our comparison is, the more likely we are to be making errors. We cannot simply pay attention to the details that support the similarity. The counter question becomes important. If we present the differences in the same fashion that the similarities are presented, do we make at least as convincing a case in the opposite direction? Comparisons don't have to be limited to two options, and by introducing additional texts to our comparison, we discover that some details glossed over or ignored really do matter. On this basis, we can make some determinations about the nature of these proposed parallels. My conclusions, of course, do not change the idea that the text Allred gives us was influenced by his environment, or that Joseph's remarks weren't influenced by his immediate environment. What we learn is that the environment proposed by Grunder, as presented in the Alcott text, was not that influence, and that the parallel that he proposes is superficial and not significant. Rhetorical value. The term rhetorical value probably needs some explanation. Quote, Rhetoric is defined broadly to include all the linguistic and literary choices a writer makes in order to communicate with his audience. End quote. When we consider rhetoric, we are looking at the author and at the author's intention. Grunder comments briefly on this. Quote, of course I have focused upon my subject, and the selections were chosen from each work to demonstrate my thesis. What I have never done consciously, and I hope never done at all, is to misrepresent an author's intent in any passage through inappropriate choice of portions to quote. Cursory comparison of some of my selections beside their original full sources may cause the occasional reader to wonder why I did not quote more. I believe, however, that upon more extensive analysis, the integrity of my representations from these writings will stand. Never, however, have I consciously quoted these passages in any manner calculated to misconstrue the sense the authors intended. It was impossible to indulge in lengthy analysis of the possible relationships which may have existed between these citations and the Mormon elements to which they bear some affinity. That is for the professional historians to undertake. End quote. Looking for an author's intent is a work of interpretation. We may well get closer in some instances than in others. Grunder is right in holding that a detailed analysis of the relationship between texts can be very lengthy. Already my discussion of the alcott allred parallel here far exceeds the half-page that Grunder provides for it, where he literally provides nothing but the two texts in a two-column parallel format. Without any discussion of interpretation, we can only guess at what Grunder has taken to be the author's intent. We can only guess at whether or not the text presented provides an accurate representation of that intent. In this way, however, Grunder has committed one of Lindsay's vices. Quote, five. Parallel columns operate piecemeal. They wrench phrases and passages out of context. A product of the imagination is indivisible. It depends on totality of effect. To remove details from their setting is to falsify them. End quote. Rhetorical value deals with interpretations and also intentions of the authors of the texts. 
In the case of these two examples, we have some wildly variant contexts. The Alcott text occurs, as I noted, in a book of instruction for young men. More narrowly, it occurs in a section that is primarily devoted to consuming food and drink. The material touches on these subjects, drunkenness, gluttony, eating too quickly, conversation during meals, the context for the parallel grunder provides, chewing your food, and drinking water. The section ends with these two rules. Quote, First, the fewer different articles of food used at any one meal, the better, however excellent in their nature those may be which are left untasted. 2. Never eat a moment longer than the food, if well masticated, actually revives and refreshes you. The moment it makes you feel heavy or dull or palls upon your taste, you have passed the line of safety. End quote. For us to assume the essential point of this text of the rhetoric is that, without a break, mental exercise can be damaging to the mind is rather problematic. Only if we assume that the similarity is itself the essential message does this come through the text. On the other hand, the all-read narrative deals with a somewhat different issue. The problem, as the story tells us, isn't about mental exercise. It is why a man who is a prophet would spend his time engaged in such activities as playing with a partridge or playing with children. In a sense, though, the rhetorical purpose of the narrative is not only to justify the behavior of Joseph Smith, it also compares him in a not-so-subtle way to John the Evangelist, author of the gospel of the same name in the New Testament. If it is okay for John to play with a partridge, it is certainly okay for Joseph to play ball with children. In this sense, the second text isn't really about the notion that the mind must occasionally take a break from mental exercise either. In focusing strictly on the similarities, in making them the essence of both texts, Grunder has reinterpreted them as referring to, quote, mental exercise, end quote a misunderstanding of both sources grounded on a desire to conflate them. A careful look at the rhetoric of each text, and more importantly at the rhetorical value and role played by the alleged similarities, reveals two texts that are not very close at all. Distance. As a final concern in this particular example, there is an issue of distance. Grunder tells us that we should prefer closer, in terms of time and distance, sources to more distant sources. I think that this is generally good advice. However, in several cases, and the example being looked at here is not an exception, the distance is between publication of the sources and not to alleged originals. Here, we have in Allred a recollection written some decades after the events it claims to describe. It may well have been influenced in the intervening years. However, given that the tradition that the Allred account draws upon can be found through that entire time period, this has very little impact on the discussion. Quote, Little could Joseph Smith Sr. have imagined as well how popular his dream about the tree of life would eventually become among generations of Mormon Sunday schoolers. Even though the dream as refined in the Book of Mormon narrative, First Nephi 8, certainly represented an important didactic allegory for Mormon readers. End quote. The account of Joseph Smith Sr.'s dream is taken from Lucy Mack Smith's account written in 1845 and later first published in 1853. As Grunder notes, quote, some scholars urge that Lucy may have read the later Book of Mormon imagery back into her husband's account. In the end, we simply cannot know, end quote. The issue here ought to be clear. By 1844, the Book of Mormon was a part of the environment of Lucy Mack Smith, one with which we expect she was fairly familiar. There is some confusion here over the distinction between source and environment. 
Grunder wants us to understand that there is no strict evidence, apart from the similarities, of course, that Smith's history relied on the Book of Mormon. And yet Grunder uses her history as evidence of environmental sources that were specifically used by Joseph Smith in his production of the Book of Mormon. There is an inconsistency here that is created by first suggesting that distance is an important consideration when looking at parallels, and then ignoring that consideration when it doesn't suit the argument. Distance is obviously a more important argument when looking at genetic connections, but it is also important when dealing with environmental suggestions as well. When making a claim for environmental causes, we need to be careful of what we insert into the environment and what it means. Those issues that often detract from genetic claims, multiple sources, patterns of language, etc., often contribute toward an environmental understanding. A note on selecting text. In any study of parallels, the process of choosing text is important. In general, we are usually more concerned with what is left out than what is left in. Grunder provides us with the criteria that he used for inclusion in his list of materials. Quote, scope limited to items which I have owned or handled. A totally comprehensive study of Mormon parallels would be impossible, even for the period immediately surrounding Joseph Smith's religious work. It would require, in the strictest sense, an examination of every imprint and every manuscript, piece of art, and other cultural artifact produced at the time. Even a thorough inspection of all printed holdings in American libraries for the period would be out of the question. A line had to be drawn, so I drew it at personal ownership. I have only included items which I was able to discover and acquire, or accept personal responsibility for, in my own research collection or antiquarian business. I also included a very small number of items owned by friends. In two instances I worked off copies supplied by friends, rather than the original imprints themselves. The kind of work I do is too slow and strenuous to perform while sitting in a library's rare book reading room. Personal ownership or custody allowed leisure to examine many items thoroughly, often in excruciating detail, and it removed most potential restrictions of permission to publish or illustrate." End quote. In the age of digital archives, it is easier to be more inclusive than was Grunder. Better results come from being more and not less inclusive, and I prefer larger bodies of text over smaller groupings. There are several reasons why inclusiveness is preferable. A bibliographic collection that Grunder has accumulated has such a narrow focus that it causes him to miss a great deal of information. Just as Mormonism comes out of something that precedes it, so does each of these texts belong to the historical era that both precedes and produces them and in which they were written. We expect to find connections between not just these texts, but with every other text. While we can focus narrowly on the proposed sources for examination, the negative check needs to be far more inclusive than exclusive. Much of this information could have been gathered by a quick search of electronic holdings that are publicly available. But in a work that is as polemical as is Grunder's collection, there is a sense in several places that he has acquired material and included it in this volume because others have suggested a connection. A good example of this is his inclusion of three maps, parallels 3, 4, 5, which are included because of a single word found on those maps, Comoro. They are included because of a suggestion made by Frederick Buchanan in a brief column in Sunstone in 1989. Another instance, previously addressed, 
is the issue of connection between the tiered system of heaven and the testament of Levi. The point here is that this is not some kind of routine or, quote, objective, end quote, selection process. Grunder has included in his collection of presumed parallels nearly every text that others have suggested might have been used as a source for the Book of Mormon. In many cases, Grunder doesn't provide the parallels, he simply references the works of others. In other cases, some references are noticeably absent. This is exactly the wrong way to go about this process. One additional issue needs to be raised. Many of Grunder's sources are rare, if not unique. Obtaining access to these sources can be difficult. This isn't merely an issue of checking Grunder's accuracy, but in having full texts available for comparison. This creates, at times, an increased burden on anyone seeking to expand or examine his comparisons. While electronic archives have expanded in recent years, and a great many of his rarer sources are now reasonably accessible, Grunder has made it very difficult to verify his sources or to recontextualize them outside of his interpretation of essentialness of the material he presents. To return to the question of Camaro, we have an extreme example in a map of Africa where he extracts a single word, one that is a homonym and not even an exact match, to compare to a single word used nine times in the Book of Mormon. Without the predetermination of significance, such a parallel would never be recognized by readers of these texts. In many cases, without the full texts, we cannot even evaluate our own responses to the suggestions. The narrow nature of my response provides us with a pre-existing list of comparisons in Grunder's bibliography. I agree with him that a detailed analysis would take far too much space to be inherently useful, and take far too long to be reasonable. To this end, when we get to this section on parallels themselves, I will examine only a couple of them. Those that I examine will generally be texts where I have access to an original copy of the sources, either in print or digitally. Following my methodology, I will introduce other texts and sources with elements that are related to the individual comparisons. This is necessary since texts are not generated within a vacuum, and the purpose for introducing other texts is to provide a context for claims of environmental relationships to discuss genetic relationships, particularly where they are indirect, and so on. Once more, genetic versus environmental parallels. In the specific example I used, we found neither genetic nor significant environmental parallels between the two sources that Grunder proposed. For each source, though, I was able to determine an environmental parallel, a textual ancestor and traditional interpretation on which each was dependent and so perhaps genetically linked. In dealing with environmental parallels, the key feature is not a single text but a host of them all of which share a set of common features. Genetic parallels generally look at single texts and their relationships. In several cases, Grunder explains to us that he is not interested in pointing to a direct connection between his sources and the Mormon texts he provides. He speaks of environmental studies. He wants us to find Mormonism in everything and everywhere. This isn't a terribly difficult task, and it isn't particularly interesting. All that his kind of study can do for us is to verify, in some sense, that Mormonism is a real movement with a real history that grew out of a specific time and place. It cannot tell us much more than that. The most basic kind of similarity that Grunder presents us with are homonyms. On pages 898 to 99, he presents us, for example, with a list of, quote, terms which sound similar to later Mormon words, end quote. 
If we define Mormon words in the same way Grender defines Mormon parallels, that is, as words in, quote, Mormonism which first existed in a non-Mormon context available in Joseph Smith's world, end quote, then we could safely assume that everything could be adequately covered by environmental studies. The same could be said of every religious movement, every society as a whole, and every culture. There isn't much that is unique when presented in this fashion. Because of this, such a study would be absolutely useless. Grender's claim that he is purely interested in environmental concerns seems problematic. He tells us, for example, that, quote, These ideas crept through the culture not only by being read, but through more subtle and often indefinable processes which occurred in art, singing, gossip, storytelling, preaching and praying, and through other aspects of a particularly active system of oral tradition, which had to flourish then even more powerfully than in today's mass-media-communicated world. And, as is still the case today, the appearance of an idea in written and printed sources generally suggested the presence of that idea already circulating orally somewhere, if not everywhere, in the environment. The books and papers which I analyze in this bibliographic source were thus no more causes than they were indicators, not necessarily contributing directly to the mind of Joseph Smith, but standing as evidence that the thoughts which he proclaimed were waiting in the air. These works do not presume that, quote, Joseph Smith once read us, end quote, so much as they insist that, quote, we were already there, end quote. The fact that we can find such texts is an indication that their content is in the environment. When Grender makes comments about his sources, he tries to make connections between the source and early Mormon figures, for example, with Parallel 1, Grunder notes that, quote, a similar list from Adair was printed in a newspaper of the town in which teenage Brigham Young was living in 1819, end quote. This kind of detail attempts to connect a particular Mormon figure with a source, an approach that has little meaning outside of an argument for some kind of influence. In other places, the claims aren't so subtle. Quote, attempts by Nat Turner and others to accomplish that very thing including the John Murrell plot in mid-1835, along with Mormon political difficulties in Missouri, undoubtedly combined to inspire Oliver Cowdery's August 17, 1835 declaration that the American anti-Masonic movement, which raged while Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon, suggests its background influence in a number of the book's passages, which describe mafia-esque intrigues of ancient American bands of robbers after the order of one Gandianton. End quote. Grunder looks for single sources, not widespread traditions. His focus on these individual sources looks far more like an argument for genetic dependency than claims for a shared environment. When his analysis is wrong, it is wrong because he has, quote, missed the forest for the trees, end quote. Grunder in many ways is a mirror image of the apologists that he derides. Quote, they come at the reader, he complains, with wave upon wave of erudite-sounding arguments often drawn from ancient sources with esoteric names and from phenomena which are nearly unassailable by the layperson. With each hit presented comes a question stated or implied, end quote. But Grunder presents literally thousands of pages of esoteric texts without having to overtly provide much of his own interpretation. He tries to pull the rug out from under his apologist opponents by asserting frequently that it doesn't matter if this specific text was a source or not, its mere existence is evidence enough. What is the implied argument that comes with the presentation of each new parallel? 
There is nothing new or original within Mormonism. We can often see direct influence from a specific source or a group of related sources reflected in a new text. Sometimes this is explicitly stated. My own essay here and Grunder's work documents in citations or footnotes hundreds of sources that are used and that have influenced our respective published works. While not always explicitly identified, we can often gauge with some certainty that the work one individual produces borrows from or was highly influenced by the work of another, even if we cannot always tell the direct path that the influence took. Once we have determined the similarities, we can then identify the differences and start to rediscover what is historically original. This is true of Joseph Smith and Rick Grunder. At the conclusion of each examination, we should be able to say with some certainty if a legitimate environmental parallel exists, if that parallel rises to a level of influence or genetic connection, and make some preliminary observations on how the parallel was used and developed within the Mormon source. Conclusion Quote, Inevitably, the presentation of so much material in this study will crave conclusions about what it all means. End quote. What does all of it mean? It should be quite obvious that Mormonism is a real movement coming from a real historical period and from a recognizable environment. It seems reasonable that we should see environmental influences coming from that time and place within Mormonism. I repeat, this shouldn't come as a surprise. The collection of texts in Grunder's bibliography, however, doesn't help enlighten as much as Grunder believes it should. More than a dozen of Grunder's parallels come in texts produced by the temperance movement, all of them presented in comparison with the Word of Wisdom in Doctrine and Covenants section 89. The highlight shared between this large body of literature and early Mormonism is the negative view on alcohol, strong drinks. There is a clear environmental issue shared by both of these movements with the larger social group to which both belong. The information we have from the historical record from that time period tells us that alcohol consumption in the U.S. was at record levels per capita, peaking at around 1830. Serious health concerns directly linked to alcohol had been in circulation for the better part of a century, and those concerns and later similar explanations contributed to a growing public discourse. In response to these issues, the temperance movement began to pick up speed about the same time as early Mormonism began to take form. Just one organization alone, the New York State Temperance Society, managed to distribute more than four and a half million tracts between 1829 and 1834, describing the evils of strong drinks. The entire population of the United States was at that time about 13 million. That this should become a topic for religion in general and in Mormonism more specifically isn't odd. If anything surprises us, it is that the word of wisdom doesn't engage in the language of these temperance groups and doesn't label strong drinks as the tool of the devil. Rather, it suggests that, quote, inasmuch as any man drinketh wine or strong drink among you, behold, it is not good, neither meet in the sight of your father, only in assembling yourselves together to offer up your sacraments before him, end quote. Doctrine and Covenants 89, verse 5. While we can see that there is a great deal of potential for an environmental relationship between these kinds of texts, the individual tracts from the temperance movement end up having very little in common with the Word of Wisdom or its later interpretation by Mormons. So why does Grunder feel the need to provide so many of these texts? 
The several examples that Grunder provides don't demonstrate to us the inevitability of the word of wisdom within Mormon thought, and they don't apparently cause the development in Mormon thought on the topic of alcohol consumption. While Grunder's bibliographic work can be helpful in pointing out some of the areas in which we can look for these environmental causes, it isn't helpful in explaining them. Similarity without difference is merely identity. When we examine parallels more closely, all we find are differences. The repeated insistence that these parallels are important is really an attempt to drive home covert conclusions and not to simply provide additional examples or possibilities. As Grender tells us in a discussion about weights and values in the Book of Mormon, quote, If one were dictating from one's head during the early period of the United States, and one were thinking of silver, gold, and grain, I think the most obvious units would be the dollar and the bushel. Both were made up of repeatedly doubled units, in common folk binary divisions. If the American Book of Mormon correlations which I have presented are not perfect, they are simplicity itself when viewed against the labored arguments offered by modern Book of Mormon defenders. I cannot say that Joseph Smith thought consciously like I propose, but I will insist that his task was easier than many people have imagined. End quote. There is a subtext to this comment. Joseph's task in this statement can only refer to the protection of the Book of Mormon. Grunder's bibliography is not a collection of potential parallels to Mormonism taken from its earliest environment. It is a series of stealth polemical arguments aimed primarily at, quote, modern Book of Mormon defenders, end quote. As such, its value in identifying real potential sources and even real environmental influences is limited. What value there might be in collecting such a range of sources is diminished by the polemical nature of the work's contents, as well as by its sheer volume, the lack of availability in its sources for casual comparison, and a summary approach that misinforms more often than it illuminates. In the end, Grunder comes across as one of Tennyson's index hunters, one of those, quote, men of great memories and no imagination, who impute themselves to the poet, and so believe that he too has no imagination, but is forever poking his nose between the pages of some old volume in order to see what he can appropriate. End quote. And the Mormonism that we discover in the pages of Grunder's book becomes ham that has lost its flavor. Mormonism isn't the hints that we can find, it is what has become of them. This has been a recording of Finding Parallels, Some Cautions and Criticisms, Part 2, by Benjamin A. McGuire, originally published in Interpreter, A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 5, 2013, pages 61 to 104, read by James Jensen.